Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Turning a Moment into a Moment. I am Jay Love, and thank you for joining us. Um, I represent the Justice for Gerard movement, and Gerard is my son who was wrongfully convicted of crime he didn't do almost three years ago. He actually went to prison for that crime, served two years in the Michigan uh, Department of Corrections, didn't innocent didn't know anything about the crime, had nothing to do with it at all. So from that journey with Gerard, it birthed this moment, turning a moment into a moment. But during that um, journey, I met so many mothers, uh, family members, and others who had loved ones that's wrongfully convicted. Um, not only wrongfully convicted, there are people in prison for crimes that never even happened. So we come here just to discuss those wrongful convictions, talk about injustice, have community um, conversations that provoke thoughts and in order to make um, get to solutions to get things done, to make change happen and to build better lives for our community. So thank you for joining us and um, thank you. <laughs> anyway, so today we have an awesome topic we have attorney Hugo Mack, who is part of this crew. He's going to be leading the conversation today. But before we bring on attorney Hugo Mack, I want to introduce you to um, the panel. So, hello. Hello, Jay. Hi, hi Trisha. Introduce yourself and tell everyone what it is that you do. So my name is Trisha Duckworth. I am the executive director of Survivor Speak, and I am the lead consultant with Value Black Lives. Um, and I'm a team member. I'm a partner here at Turning a Moment into a Movement. Yay. And I'm definitely an ally of the Justice for Gerard movement. Um, I met Jay out there fighting on the front lines for her son, not taking no for an answer. And I said, I was so happy Nick introduced us because <laughs> we have um, birthed a, a friendship and a sisterhood. And so I'm just excited to be here. Always excited to be with you all. Not too excited to talk about what we have to talk about all the time, but it is what it is. Because until we see change, we won't stop. And we hope you'll take that same mindset too. Yes. Thank you, Trisha. Hi, Rabatia. Well, hello, hello, how beautiful people. I'm so excited to be here tonight, um, turning a moment into a movement. And um, I'm telling you, I feel powerful every time we connect. And it's important. I think connection is important. And thank you. Thank you so much, Jay Love, for connecting us on so many different levels and helping us to awaken even more. Uh, right now, I, of course, I am co-founder of The Choice Zone, and that's where I'm helping people make choices that are going to be most beneficial for themselves and for our community. Fits right in with turning a moment into a movement. Exactly. I'm a behavior 
technician always working with uh, children uh, in their behavior and as well as um, I think adults need behavior intervention also. I think our leaders need <laughs> behavior intervention on so many I'm part of the G100 women all over the world globally. We are connecting uh, right now. It is Women's Month. It's every day. It's our day. And so um, I'm just pleased to be here because we gotta we gotta keep moving. We gotta keep going. We have to stop believing all the narratives that are coming to us, and we need to know not only what we're up against, but we need to know the power that's within us. Yeah. And that we have power to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means harm us when we know it. And when we, like Trisha said last week, are not conformed to this world. Yeah. Thank you so much for the thank opportunity you, to be here. Yes. Thank you, Reverend Tia. So we have an awesome guest today. I'm so glad that she's joining us. She's a, a radio host. She wears a lot of different hats. Hello, Valerie. How are you? I am fine. How is everyone out there? Oh, we're great. Introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do. I am Valerie Kelly Bonner. I am the host of The Real Black Coffee, No Sugar, No Cream, Straight Talk with Valerie, where we keep it strong, black, and unfiltered. And I am so happy to be here with these powerful sisters. Um, we are making history. Forget about Women's History Month. We are making history with the things that we are doing for our community, the things that we are doing within society and not taking no for an answer, standing for justice, standing for what is real and making a difference each and every day in how we move, what we're moving for and what moves us. So I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much, J-Love. I have so much respect for you and each and every person on this panel. It is my pleasure to be here this evening. Oh, we're so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. So today we're gonna um, speak on, is the criminal legal system guilty? And we're gonna bring in our speaker. Attorney Hugo Mack, hi. How are you? How's everybody? We're great. Okay, How about now, yourself? Good. Can you hear me? Great. No, no feedback. Everything what? sounds good. See, see, <laughs> see, there we go. There we go. <laughs> I don't know what you did, but you did it. <laughs> hey, hey, look here. From now on, I'm going on Microsoft Edge as my browser. You hear me? Oh, okay. Microsoft Edge, okay. And these and these headphones right here. Okay. So so here we go. Here we go. Well, a pleasure to be here um, with my colleagues and these outstanding black women. You know, I'm always joyed to be up in here, you know? So uh, I love this ratio. I love it. I love it. So, so, <laughs> so, so you know, here we are. And uh, 
I'm proud and uh, honored, uh, Jay Love, that you allow me to have opportunity to give my perspective on uh, on the topic that, that that you've assigned me, and that's what I'm 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 here to do. You know, uh, to speak my truth. Okay, yes. as, as as I see as I see our our situation in America as Black people. Attorney Hugo Matt, well then just take the floor. <laughs> well, you know, J Love, the seminal issue that we're going to talk about is is a criminal justice system guilty. And that depends on who you're talking to. I think for the majority of people on this panel, and perhaps the majority of people listening we would have to say that the criminal justice system is in fact guilty when it comes to black, brown, indigenous people and women. However, I also feel that when we talk about a large percentage of the African-American community within the United States of America and the, and the state of Michigan itself, I would have to say in their eyes, the criminal justice system is certainly not guilty. And I'll, I'll tell you why. But first of all, let me say this as my personal feeling. I think if a person seeks to understand the history of slavery, invidious discrimination, of white supremacy in this country, and views our problem in dealing with that as strictly an external one, in other words, things that are coming to us without understanding we have an organic responsibility to perfect ourselves, despite of the challenges that come against us. I think any person that feels that way is not looking at the situation honestly. And I think to kind of parrot the words of uh, the late Dr. Francis Crest Wesley, if we feel that way, then everything else we think we know will only confuse us, okay? So mm -hmm. the problem that we have in confronting white supremacy invidious racism, the history and the vestiges of slavery in this country is twofold. Yes, we understand disparagements and sentencing. Yes, we understand racial profiling. You know, yes, you know, we understand confirmation bias. Yes, we understand, okay, uh, uh, technology, facial recognition technology, and all these things. But I think that part of it is we do a disservice to our ancestors. We do a disservice to people who didn't have the internet. They didn't have telephones, you know, they didn't have the mass communications that we have, all right? The technology we have today, Dr. King and the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, back in, in 55, 56, we, they didn't have that, but they found it within their hearts, their hearts to band together and sacrifice as a group. So uh, part of my discussion will be based on the responsibility that we have and some of the shortcomings that we have got to address as a people. And I'm talking to black men here, uh, talking to black people in general, but the black men as to our responsibility to be the men that God created us, us to be. So just a brief history and all of you know Black people are in a very unique position in this nation. We're the only people that have had to have three constitutional amendments to even make us whole. 
We're the only people that had to overcome the three-fifths compromise. We've had dozens of civil rights legislations, hundreds of executive orders. We have made some progress socially, economically, athletically, entertainment, um, housing, education, and political gains over the last hundred years. And we have fought and died in every war this nation has had in disproportionate amounts. We've had thousands of black folks lynched, hundreds of civil rights leaders that have been martyred. So in our effort to become what we consider American, unfortunately for far too many of us in that effort to become American, we have also become what I term comfortably numb, comfortably numb in the false belief that things are all right, in the false belief that, well, I'm doing okay, so everything has got to be all right. I can't be concerned about what's happening down the road with somebody else. I'm okay. I got my job. I got my nice car. I got my promotion. You know, my refrigerator is full. So part of my presentation today will be for us to do a reality check on ourselves. And like I said, not so much pointed at individuals that are on this panel, but for people who may be listening who think that we're actually in a much better state in this nation than what we actually are. And the reality of it is, is that black people have always been willing to look past race, but race has never been willing to look past us. And when I look at the dynamic with black people and race and our willingness to look past race, I don't have to look but 60 miles to the east, a city called Detroit, 750,000 people, the largest minority majority city in the nation. Three times, three times, the people in the city of Detroit that have voted have said, not the white mayor, but the right mayor. We have always been willing to look past race. Race has never been willing to look past us. Now, those 17% that voted, now remember, Dr. King and the civil rights movement dealt with horses, fire hoses, police dogs, the Klan, the police standing at black voting areas, ready to crack heads, okay? Telling people, if you show up here, your black behind will be shot, will be shot, you know? How many, how many jelly beans in this, in this, in this jar, okay? You know, you know, how many bubbles here in this, in this bar of soap, okay? All kind of black codes, all, all kind of restrictions, grandfather clauses, but yet, in the city of Detroit, which I'm proud of, but the reality is the reality. We don't have those restrictions. We have early voting, satellite voting, same day voter registration, okay? But yet for some reason, for some reason, we continue to work on autopilot and allow a minority of people dictate where we go as a people. That's wrong, saints, that's wrong. We have got to start standing up for ourselves and holding these people accountable. And the reason they continue doing it is because they know they can get away with it. So now some people may say, well, why are you bashing on Detroit? I'm not bashing on Detroit. I'm using that as an example of where we have such a potential, such an opportunity to protect ourselves and guide our own government. <laughs> now, you know, I never met Mike Duggan. But I know this, 
the one that black people have put in office three consecutive times said openly, I'm not in favor of reparations. Said that openly. We don't have the money, the time, or inclination to deal with reparations. I do know this, that the United States of America, jumping to us as a nation, didn't have any problem fighting in 1988 civil rights legislation to give reparations to 82,000 Japanese, $1.5 billion to Japanese for reparations. $1.5 billion back in 1988 equates to $3.6 billion today. What has happened with our reparations, Saints? You see, we were brought here in chains, you know, raped, castrated, families broken up. And I'm sorry what happened to the Japanese. I'm, I'm sorry that happened to them. But they weren't brought here in chains. They came here of their own accord. So what I'm saying is, when I talk about us and responsibility, I heard one member of the panel say one time a couple weeks back, ain't nobody coming. We are the ones that have got to save ourselves, okay? We have got to save ourselves. And I guess for me, when I think about it, I look at the pain that we have gone through. I understand my own personal experience. And I realize it's got to keep coming from us. The cavalry is not coming to save us, all right? They are not coming to save us. So we've got to start with our own self-determination and save ourselves. And, and, and I want to say this. People can criticize the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. They can talk about the Nation of Islam. But I know in 1995, okay, in October, he brought one million black men to Washington, D.C. to address our power, our responsibility. I know that about him. I know that the Nation of Islam says we need to protect our women. We need to have respect for our communities. We need to not have drugs and crime rampant in our communities. I know that. So anybody that is willing to say that and to put forth that, I don't have a problem with them. And I'm not going to get involved in, you know, in ideologies and religion and those sorts of things to say that they are somehow wrong and my religion is somehow always right. So for me, when I look at, and once again, once again, I call things the way they are, okay? When I look at the African-Americans who put certain people in office, when I look at the African-Americans who said, we're going to vote down a proposal that would give us police oversight in, in the city of Detroit, I'm concerned. When those same people vote, it's okay for us to have magic mushrooms in the city of Detroit to get high. I am, in fact, concerned. And I think we need to hold those, those people accountable. So I guess at this point, I want to have some interaction with the, with the people that, that are here, my colleagues that are here, okay? From your own experience, I'd just like to know, what is it you feel that we can do to energize and encourage ourselves to be self-sufficient and not just keep taking what other people hand off to us. So uh, I'd like to start with uh, 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 Trishay, if, if, if that's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, what was your question again? You know, in, in, in your experience in the, in the struggle, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You you've seen the weaknesses and the strengths, you know, of the struggle that we engaged in. You know, what more can we do, you know, you know, to enhance ourselves, a belief in ourselves and our own destiny, as opposed to counting on other people to help us out? 
don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Because in order to do something like that, we'd have to come together. Um, we'd have to educate ourselves. Um, and we'd have to do something different. And we don't like different. So I, I don't have the answer to that. I know what we need to do, but do I think we can do it? I don't, the jury's still out on that. No, I, I can't say that because all things are possible. Um, but what will it take to ignite that fire within for us to know that A, we are in trouble and B, nobody is coming to save us and C, we got to damn do something about it. Right, right. Valerie, how about you? Look, the way I the way I see this, I agree with Trisha. We need to stop saying we we need to come together. I don't think that that's ever going to happen where we all come together collectively to fight for justice. And I don't think it ever was. It was just enough of the right people that came together in the civil rights movement and other movements throughout this country and our history. It was the right people that came together. I don't think it was everyone. And then we always had that one person inside of that movement that infiltrated it and destroyed it for us. We saw it with Malcolm X. We saw it with Martin Luther King. So what we have to do is be careful who we organize with. And then we have to be real. We have to be real about everything, mental illness, housing instability, um, being over-policed, wage issues, inequalities, all of that. Those things contribute a great deal to our people becoming a part of the criminal unjust system or the criminal illegal system because it's not just and it's not legal they're doing what they want to do the way that they want to do it so the problem is until we address our own issues that we have internally even as a family unit when we look at coming together our churches can't even come together and you know looking out through the civil rights movement or even the mosque coming together with the nation of Islam or whatever. We've even lost that type of unity. I don't see any church leaders that I trust. I'm not getting behind nobody that I see that's leading a church at this point in time. You know, um, there's an issue with each and every one of those structures and what they're doing in our community. I have one, I'm not a member of the church and I don't know them personally, Pastor Kenlock seems to be doing a great job of engaging a community, using his power. You know, um, the governor tried to appoint him to a certain diversity board or criminal justice board, whatever it was, but he denied it. Like, you will not use my power and my voice over my people. You know, I, I don't need you and I'm not participating. We need more of those. 
you know, what happened to our NAACP? I used to call it the National Association of Chicken Parts, but really it's Negroes always asking Caucasians for permission. And we need some people in there who don't feel like they have to be a part of the status quo or ask permission to do anything for our people. But you know why they do that? They have to. If they don't get marching orders from D.C. and from the top, they better not march about anything that's going on in their communities. So it doesn't matter if Swindle Window is over the chapter in Detroit. That doesn't matter because the marching orders come higher than that anyway. So we need education on systems and structures and how they work, holding people accountable. But when it comes to what is in our control, we can address mental illness in our communities. We can address the crime in our communities, the over-policing by coming together and starting within your own household. We all know what's going on in our household with our families. We can start there. Control what's in your house. Control what you're rearing. When I see a person who wants to be apologetic about who they are, you're taking the wrong credit. Your mama and daddy is responsible for who you are. Now, what you become beyond that point, that's on you. But my mama and daddy is responsible for who I am. I fight against certain things that I don't like about myself every day because those things were instilled in me at home. Who I become is my choice. And I think we need to look at those things. And I yield to the panel. Well, well I, 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 can I chime in real quick, Attorney Mack? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know what? I love it. I, I think that that's, that's the key. Um, I had written down um coming together means first of all educating ourselves on the issues like valerie was talking about what are the issues and these aren't just reg regular issues these are issues that are not not only toward african americans or people of color but they are issues that are inhumane at its base they are inhumane and so we got to know what is affecting our community, like she said, and then take responsibility and decide what it is that you really want. Do you want, I, I started thinking about for my grandchildren, do I want them growing up in this? Do I want them to grow up in this environment? How can I stop it? How can I change? And we got to stop prostituting ourselves with our organizations. We gotta stop being prostitutes and just going after the money. Wherever the money is, that's where we go. That's where we flow. That's where we go. That's where we flow. We follow the money. And then we wanna stay sometimes, well, the love of money. It's the love of money. It's the love of money. Yeah, but you're loving it. If you can be bought to shut your mouth on a case that is inhumane, then you're a prostitute. These are right prostitution true. ways. Right right. So we, we can we can educate ourselves and have ethics in the family. Have your own, develop some ethic, uh, ethical standards. Develop a protocol in your family so that everyone in the family knows this is how we roll. 
We're not, we're not going to follow the narrative of the day. My, my children used to say, mama, why don't you just teach us at home? Cause you teach us every day at home. Anyway, when they got home from school, they had more work. They had just a few things to make sure that mathematically and in English and in another language, they were advancing. Why? Because I knew they weren't going to get it in school. I knew they weren't going to get it in school. We have power and it's with us. That's right. That's right. Jay Love. So um, I think it also starts with you making a choice. Um, you have to decide whether you're going to, you know, keep doing the same old thing, inspecting a different result, or you're going to try to do something different. You know, for me, um, um, when it, when the wrongful conviction happened to my son, I couldn't believe it in the beginning. But as I sat in the courtroom and not only watched what my son was going through, but witnessed what other people were going through, I'm like, this is unbelievable. I watched all the plea deals and all the, the laughter and the playing between the professionals in the courtroom. And it's unbelievable that, you know, we don't, uh, they want you to be quiet and be professional and look a certain way. But we don't get that, you know, when we're there. So for me, I had to make a choice like, you know, I'm going to have to say something about this because this is, you know, not right. And so it comes down to the individual person making a choice first, a choice of saying, you know, no, I, I'm not going to accept this or I want a better life. I want a better life, not only for myself, but for my family, like Rabbitia said, for my grandkids. You know, and once you everyone. So I think it starts first with you, the individual person. And then once you decide, you know, you attract those people. I just like once I decide, I attracted you guys. So <laughs> once you decide, the right people will show up. And um, like um Val said, you know, it it wasn't a whole we didn't come together, you know, different movements that worked before it took a certain group of people. So, I mean, even with this, it's going to take for us to make things happen, uh, a certain group of people that is committed to change. Well, you know, I want to say um, that just brings tears to my eyes because every one of you have talked about the need for family. And, you know, that is one of the most wicked, invidious things that has happened to us in the United States of America, the absolute destruction of the black family, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, and 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 from slavery and 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 before, you know, and so I want to make something very very clear. I have said, and I will continue to talk about our responsibility for ourselves because nobody's coming, but I don't want anybody on this panel or listening to think that I'm saying 
we do not have external forces that are marshaled together to try and destroy us because we certainly have been the victim of horrendous discrimination, of horrendous disadvantage, particularly in education. Let me give you an example. In, in 1933, a man by the name of Dr. Carter G. Woodson wrote a book entitled The Miseducation of the Negro, okay? The Miseducation of the Negro. Now remember, this is 90 years ago this man wrote this book. 90 years ago this man mm -hmm. okay, wrote this book. And he found from looking at the educational system, and this is before Brown versus Board of Education, that, uh, that the educational system really was not interested in teaching the Negro, as, as we were called back then, the Negro, uh, anything but indoctrinating the Negro. And there's a big difference between teaching somebody and indoctrinating somebody. A man by the name of Hitler indoctrinated a group of young people called the Hitler Youth, indoctrinated them to where they felt that strapping grenades, hand grenades onto themselves and jumping onto uh, allied tanks and running into uh, allied soldiers with that grenade, that that was serving the fatherland. That's what they were supposed to do. That's what he quote unquote taught them and it was indoctrination. And what I'm saying is what Dr. Woodson said some 90 some years ago was true then and it's true now. Because when you look at every time there's an effort and let's talk about the 1619 project. Let's talk about a frank discussion on critical race theory. Let's talk about the Virginia governor's race last year that was decided on that issue, on that issue. The Republican that won that race said, we don't want all these things being taught to our kids. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that's exactly what happened, okay? So what I'm saying is they continue the series of trying to indoctrinate us by keeping us and by the way, the majority culture, the young white kids need to hear this as much or more than our kids need to hear it, to understand how this nation was formed, to understand whether they not whether they may not have said, well, I wasn't a slaveholder, uh, uh, my people weren't slaveholders, that may be true, but you are the recipients of that systemic racism that has gone on generationally. That's the message we have to get across to our white brothers and sisters. And it doesn't mean somebody's got a bad heart or they hate black people, but we have to stop pretending that systemic racism and the privileges of systemic racism exist today. It is not an even playing field. It has never been even playing field. Now, so you say, well, what does that do with anything? It has to carry over with our criminal justice system because when it's not an even playing field and we're indoctrinated to think that it is, so when we come up and we get an unjust sentence, well, that's just the way it is. When we get a prosecutor who says there's no discrimination in law enforcement, well, that's just the way it is. When you get a police chief like James Craig, remember now, the leading Republican candidate for governor in the state of Michigan, please do not forget that, my black people. Please do not forget that. This is the man that Donald Trump called on advice for other police agencies throughout the nation on how to crack black heads. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And that is exactly what he said. Because James Craig said, we don't have any discrimination law enforcement in, in, in Detroit Police Department. People who get their heads cracked, they deserve to get their heads cracked. That's exactly what that man said. And so you see, when I talk about the responsibility that, that black folks have 
three times we elected a mayor in the city of Detroit who didn't voice objection to James Craig in the time he was there. Okay. Okay. But yet we elected that man. And so when I say for black people that the criminal justice system is not broke, it's not broke because we tolerate it and we support it. We support it by keep electing people who do the same thing to us time and time and time again. And we're thanking them for the privilege of doing that to us. So when I talk about in terms of the criminal justice system, you know, I, it's also tied so much to, to economics, you know, to economics, um, because it's my feeling that black people in this country, we've always been like renters, we're not, never buyers, never owners, always renters. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know, we've got to rent space. At a, at a lunch counter just to get somebody's stale hamburger. You know, we got to rent space at a bus, okay? You know, you know, just so that the fumes don't come up as close to us as we as if we were, were in the back. And, and yeah, I'm gonna talk about a situation in Detroit. I'm gonna talk about a situation where I think black folks have been played. I'm gonna tell you what, in 2018, the people of the state of Michigan voted for recreational marijuana, okay? Recreational marijuana, all right? A whole lot of black folks voted for that, you know. Well, you know, I got a right, you know, I got a right in this one, what have you. Okay, well, okay, that's fine. But let's take a look at that, how that's impacted the largest minority majority city in the nation, Detroit. All right. What I'm saying is, is this they have what they call a legacy initiative in Detroit, where they had, where they're saying, okay, with recreational marijuana, we're going to set aside a certain amount of these dispensaries to be black owned, all right? Because black people disproportionately are by far and large the greatest consumers of marijuana, by far and large. So to at least have some black ownership. Well, somebody filed a lawsuit and that initiative, that legacy initiative has really gone nowhere. At most, we may have 9% black ownership of dispensaries in the city of Detroit, all right? So that means that once again, we are a great consumer a great consumer, but not a great owner. And the same thing with mm -hmm. liquor stores. Over 700 liquor stores in the city of Detroit. 700. And guess whose neighborhoods they're in? <laughs> guess whose neighborhoods they're in? Okay. So once again, great consumers of alcohol, uh, great consumers of Lucy's, those loose cigarettes. Okay. Great, great consumers of whatever crime comes and goes in those gas stations, those liquor stores but next to 0% ownership. And I'm telling you, panel, that has an impact. When we don't own anything, it's easy for people to push us to the side, okay? When we don't own anything, we don't feel a need to protect it. If we don't feel a need to protect it, we don't feel a need to vote to protect it. And that's the mojo that, 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 that we have got to deal with. And that's the mojo that I'm so encouraged with hearing you say, we have to start with our family. We do. We, we we have to start um, with our family. Attorney so, Hugo, Matt, I have to agree with you with the ownership piece. I mean, I just read that. I think Damon Dash was talking about that. Um, if you, in order for change to be made, you have to own, you know, you need to be owners and not just consumers. So, yeah. You know, and, 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 and if I can say this, and I, I want to open this up to everybody, and I can say this. You see, it's gotten to the point where, Oh, I'm sorry, I just have to call it the way it is, a white corporation, they'll hire a black face to be in the front of it, okay? They'll hire somebody to be out in front of it 
in order to increase corporate profits. A great example is McDonald's. You know, I see all these commercials with black folks going to McDonald's and eating. But what they're not telling you is McDonald's has been one of the major forces against a living wage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are against a living wage. OK. OK. You know, you know, Walmart against mm -hmm. a living wage. You understand? You understand? Against the ability of you and the people you love to go work in those restaurants and protect your family. So they'll throw out a few little scholarship here or or some black celebrity driving a Cadillac. OK, you know, you know, to make you think when these are the same people that are raping the natural resources in the continent of Africa, same people that are keeping down wages, the same people that are against unions, the same people that are against self-expression, the same people that would put billions of dollars in corporations to stop uh, any kind of clean air, clean water initiative. By the way, dirty water and dirty air hurt, hurts us the, the most, in case y'all didn't know that. Okay, okay. We're the ones living next to the incinerators. You understand? We're the ones listing, li living next to the toxic dumps. It's not other people. So uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to say that, but I also wanted to open it up with this. I would like to get the panel's opinion. When we have a city council like the city of Detroit, 99% uh, black, if not 100% black, how do you explain the disconnect between the interests of the people and the interest that's displayed in, in, in city council? For example, not being able to pass that legacy initiative to ensure at least a proportional amount of black ownership of these weed shops uh, in the city of Detroit. Can somebody help me to understand that? So I'm glad you brought that back up because you know, it's, what do they call it? Bait and switch, kind of sort of like that, right? They put it out there that says, we got this social equity program for marijuana, right? And um, so many of these agencies or so many of these businesses have to be black owned. Well, but then it's specific, specifically when they first rolled out with medical marijuana, right? They said, you got to have $300,000 in assets to even be considered for a license. I, I don't know. I mean, not many of us have $300,000 just laying around, right? Um, and so when we say we got to own stuff, we, we have to put our money and come together. But why even impose something like that? If you're going to put a social equity plan in place, then it's up to city council to say, hey, okay, put your money where your mouth is. Put the social equity plan in place. Waive that, right? That demands that people have a certain amount of assets before they can apply for these licenses. I think right now, a commercial growers license $6,000. Well, if you got a social equity plan, then you should be having, you know, African-Americans pay for that or nothing. So, you know, while people say, oh, we don't put take stuff. no. It ain't about taking stuff. It's about doggone it, what we deserve. But we won't get it if we don't say it. We won't get it if we don't educate ourselves to know how they have crafted these laws so that they're all twisted and turned. And now what? We sit in a million dollar, billion dollar industry. Talk about reparations. That's how they could pay reparations mm -hmm. from the tax. <laughs> Off of marijuana. Yeah. <laughs> you are, I, let, let me serve y'all know that y'all owe us. And I don't care who don't want they cut. 
I'll take theirs, okay? I'll take that cut. Because y'all owe us. You built this country off of our back. And period, until we get what we deserve, which probably really will be never, because but we'll never stop fighting until you do. You might do what you want to do, but you'll have a battle on your hands the whole entire time. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. It's old. This is old to us. They have taken an industry that that is in from indigenous people. This is marijuana is an indigenous product. The the whether it's marijuana, the cannabis plant, or whether it's hemp, all of that did was a part of a culture, and it was so it, it was a part of everyday life of healing, medicine, even clothing. When you really realize the benefit of hemp or the benefit, and that's why now they say, well, we have CBD oil. You owe us. We should stop acting like nobody owes you anything. This came from the ground. And because it came from the ground, you didn't even make it. This, this is a product that was on the earth. And then you take it and want to, how can we benefit off of black people's consumption? And we don't want reparations. I think after today, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to own me at this. I don't want to own the dispensary, <laughs> but I'm going to own something. If it's going to be some land, I'm growing something. <laughs> I'm growing I want the whole cannabis farm. Forget it. Okay. Wait, <laughs> I'm with you. That's what I'm saying right there. I want the whole farm. I'm with Touche. Touche, we going to we going to do it. All that for our community. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, let Amen. me say this. The issue is the people in office, they don't fear us. And we the people have it twisted because they work for us but the transparency and accountability that's required of those individuals for some reason we forget about holding them accountable for their campaign promises and all of the other things that they should be doing for our community you know and then you get a few in there at the table that do the sambo dance ah you know and as long as they do the sambo dance everybody's good you know, or whatever. I'm so tired of that damn Sambo dance. The lady that does the Sambo Awards in the city of Detroit, I cannot think of her name right now, but um, she's spot on. Agnes, 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 Agnes Hitchcock. Agnes Hitchcock. Yeah. Yes. Ah, you know, just, <laughs> just doing the Sambo dance at the table and everywhere and not being held accountable for what it is that they were put in office to do. Even the judges. The, you know, the prosecuting attorneys, city council, and all of that. I've been living in the city of Detroit now for five years, and, and I'm, I'm just sick of it. You know, I, I'm sick of every single aspect of it. It's not getting any better at all. Because the few people that you get at the table who want something different, it's not enough. Let me tell you something that I'm sick of. We're always celebrating the first black something. One ain't a damn enough. 
So even when the lady gets confirmed at the Supreme Court level, that's just one person. That's not a damn enough for us to benefit anything at all. And let me tell you something. I'm not celebrating any of these people until I can feel the impact of the decisions that they make positively in my community. You haven't done a damn thing for me. And I can't think of one president, one city council member, or anybody that has made change enough where I feel the impact of it on Seven Mile. Until that happens, you haven't done nothing for me, period. And I mean that. So until I see it on Seven Mile, I feel the impact in my community, then you haven't done nothing for me lately. But like Tia said, prostituted and raped me. You know, you gave me something to look forward to, you know, when I was at the polls. And that's another thing. We should be getting behind individuals and grooming them for the position. We stop cultivating leaders. That's why we don't have any Malcolm X's and any Martin Luther King's or anything like that. It is not that any of our children or anybody else coming up did not have leadership abilities. Mm -hmm. They do, but we don't cultivate leadership. And I see the question, what made me move to Detroit? Love, love. I found new love, and and he um, owned a home here in the city of Detroit, and it just made sense for us to come up under his roof since he owned his home. I couldn't fight that with renting where I was living on the beautiful lake in Belleville, so I came here. Um, but I'm from Inkster, so there are a lot of similarities between some of the things that happen in the city of Detroit and some of the things that happen in Inkster. Maybe not necessarily in the government, but the demographic. And now that I'm here, you know, even though I live here and make decisions about what goes on in the household and community, they don't want to come together. I'm not a native Detroiter, so I don't know. Damn it, yes, I do know. I don't have to, Ray Charles can see what's going on over here on Seven Mile. How damn long do I have to be here to see something ain't right? You know, then people don't want to embrace you. I went to a couple of block club meetings and then I was just like, you know what, forget it because people are not going to get behind you. I don't know if I look intimidating, sound intimidating. I don't know what the hell go on that people can't look past what they see on the surface and see my heart and my compassion to want to help. We are right over here. We're not struggling with mental health issues. We're not struggling with food. We can pay our water bill. We can pay all of that stuff. So for me to come to a meeting, that's to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's my Harriet Tubman syndrome kicking in. I'm trying to help you. And they looking at me like I'm crazy or like I don't belong or you're not a native Detroiter or whatever. Okay, then. You know, I do my sambo dance on out the damn door, like the Apollo, like somebody took an umbrella and like, da, 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 I'm out of here because I don't have time to be playing with these people. And I'm going to mess around and say some things that are not quite necessary to be said because it won't be received well. But that's how I ended up in Detroit. And I'm proud to say that I'm a Detroiter. But for me to roll up my sleeves and do any work, it would be a waste of time.
because it's not enough people that's going to get behind me to make anything any different. Well, I don't know if Jay Love had something to say, but <laughs> I, I have another question for the black women that I see in front of me right now. So Jay Love, whatever you want to say, but I've got a question for y'all when, when Jay Love is done. Oh, you can go ahead and ask the question. Okay. Is there anybody on this panel who's never seen the movie uh, School Days by Spike Lee? Oh, I've Any seen it. Okay, okay. And anybody not seen it? Okay, let me let me ask you a question. When are we as black people going to get to the point of admitting we still got the paper bag test going on in class warfare amongst ourselves? Okay. Okay. Because the bottom line is, I see it. I'm sorry. I see it. And even with darker complexion, black folks, they got a little bit of cha-ching, a little bit of, bit of money, you know, able to move to, uh, you know, you know, the outskirts of Ann Arbor or, or, or Barton Hills or something like that. I see it. Okay. So don't we have a responsibility to ourselves to acknowledge that class warfare that I heard a good friend of mine by the name of Sam Riddle talk about? that class warfare? Don't we have a responsibility or am I wrong? Maybe there is no class warfare. Uh, you know what, there, de there definitely is class warfare. And I, th I think that as um, as people in America, if we did the research on when all of this started and how all this starts, you know, you realize that there is, I call it the slave masters or the slave captures mentality. And that is, when you have taken on the mindset to take over and conquer and divide. And so if you look at even world history, wherever there was conquering and division and colonization, they always picked a side. They picked a narrative. Uh, even the Hootsies and Tootsies, it, it, they picked the size of the head and the nose and said, okay, you're going to be good. You're not so good. You know, you look at South Africa and the division. Wherever there is a divide, it has happened. And so, again, here we are in America, and then there is a divide. We got to ask ourselves how did that divide start? And when you look at the history of things, Let's just break it down. I know as a little John down in South Carolina, the they had to separate and do two different churches in our town because the slave master was upset that these mulatto children, the women were upset for the mulatto children running around because they knew that those children did not come from her, but they did come from her husband. Mm. And so they built another church because they couldn't even worship together. Wow. But when you know the history, you can make a different decision. Then you realize how ignorant it is. Your complexion does not make you any smarter. That's right. That's good right there. That's real good. You know, um, it's it's really sad because there are definite differences. 
But I guess we forgot the rule of how they look at us. If it's just one little iota <laughs> of uh, Negro blood in you, right. okay, one. then you Negro, okay? <laughs> so whether you a fair-skinned Negro, whether you are a brown-skinned Negro, whether you are a deep melanin chocolate sexy Negro, you still Negro. What you fighting about? Where's the difference? Because I promise you, in the eyes of the oppressor, we all look the same. But see, the issue is, is some of us are clear on that. When we get a little money, get a little honey, get a little stuff, right? Then we get real uppity and we think that we're in a different class until something comes along to remind us. I don't care mm -hmm. how much money you got. I don't care how much stuff you got. You still nigra. Period. Exactly. Okay. 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 Well, we always get reminded, you know, the, the, uh, Oprah was reminded when she went in the Tiffany store with it. She didn't have no makeup on. She wasn't looking Oprah-ish. And they reminded her um, <laughs> that, you know, she had to let them know that she was Oprah before they realized, oh, okay, you're just not the regular. So, yeah, even when we are um, the, um, the, the movie director the other day, when he went to the bank, to get $10,000, he was reminded, and not only was he reminded, he was reminded by his own people because some of us carry out the oppressor's um, work. So, you know, the black tailor, the black police officers. So, yeah, we get reminded. Okay, all right. Well, you know, on the, the well, topic of that gentleman, you know, I, I had a lot of questions. Number one, could the teller damn read? The note didn't look anything like a bank robber note. <laughs> Number two, and then the gentleman, I was hoping that he used that situation for some type of reform, but he was like, oh, well, I talked to Bank of America, yeah. you know, and we're good, so we're going to move past it. You should have took every dime you had out of that bank. Every dime you had out of that bank and went somewhere else, and that person should have been reprimanded. Oh, well, we talked and we good. I would have never been good with that. No. If you don't get out of here, you handcuffed me because I'm dressed down and I don't want the counter counting out $12,000 on in public or whatever so i'm just asking you to give me privacy and the black police officer will say well you know you probably should have called master beforehand and just told her he was coming for a few of your dollars <laughs> maybe this wouldn't have you know okay you know and it was like i ain't got to call no damn body and i'm coming for my damn money right i'm not calling nobody to ask permission for that so, you know, that whole situation was horrific and so much more of it goes on. He just happened to be a popular person, but so much more of that goes on. And one thing they know, the oppressor knows is about our mentality. They know they have control 
right? When they come up with those plea deals, like, well, I, you're going to get some time, but I'll give you less time if you just say yes. You know that you did it all the way down to paying us some money. Well, I wronged you. So, you know, here's a few dollars. I, I hope I never get in a position where I have to accept any of those things. I really don't. Our money is not good money, you know, and then just still be able to have to bow down because of some of these things that are happening to us. And they're still making us bow down. Right. You know, right. that Willie Lynch letter, it worked and it's still working. We have the Willie Lynch syndrome going on still to this day. And we just need to figure out how to break that vicious cycle. Yeah. Can I also add with that same, um, speaking on that bank situation, um, Bank of America has had some lawsuits and they had to pay out because of their racist tactics. And so when we're working in these inside these institutions, um, banking institutions that were the, uh, these bank on, banks are straight from slavery. Um, some of these owners, uh, how they got their money, their millions. When we work and we're, we get trained in a certain way that we have to follow the oppressors training. And so once we get this training and how we operate at work, we take on this whole mindset. And so we will, you know, uh, have more in common with master than we have in common with the person who come in the door to look just like you, you know, automatically think he's a bank he's robbing a bank didn't even look at the note that said probably didn't even look at because he folded up something and handed it to her automatically he's robbing the bank so we have to you know when we talk about you know um, change we have to look at our mindsets too and how we have taken on these ideals and these lessons and all these things that have been put into us and we have to learn how to let those things go. Again, it goes back to you making a choice. You have to unlearn everything that you learn. And that it, from elementary school all the way up. And, and take um, responsibility and learning your history, understanding who you are, why things are like this. Just don't take our words for it or anybody's word for it. Do your own due diligence mm -hmm. so you can understand what clearly what you're fighting for. I agree with Val. I would have took all my money out. But because we're so, you know, want to get along, it's okay. We had a conversation. But how many people have that happened to that wasn't taking out $10,000 or didn't have a certain title? You know, we he made the news because of who he is. But this happens all the time in all different walks of life in all different industries. And we have to start standing up, not even, you know, for yourself, for others. This is why we come here every Friday, because we want to stand up for others, not only just for ourselves, but for others. And so we have to get to that mindset that it's not just about you. He had an opportunity to make a change that would affect how Bank of America operated but he dropped the ball. Okay. Okay. Look, one thing I run into all the time, <clears throat> you know, the reality that 
black people are victimized by the black people in terms of crime, the overwhelming, overwhelming amount of time, okay? So it's not some Klansman from Howell, okay, that, you know, knocked that black woman in her head and, and, and stole her purse, all right? You know, it's not some, some cracker from up north, excuse my language, okay, uh, you know, in Sault Ste. Marie, okay, you know, that broke in somebody's house on Southside Ipsy and stole a flat screen TV, okay, okay? You know, it's none of these people carjacking, you know, a man and got his woman scared to walk down the street because she's going to be disrespected, you know, and accosted. Sexual assault, uh, sexual in your windows, you know, all these kind of things. So my question is, from you, and, and I'm glad I'm talking to Black women here, from you, don't you have a right to walk down the street without being harassed, harangued, sexually assaulted, mugged by somebody who looks like you? Don't you have a right to have the police come and deal harshly with that man that does that to you or your daughter or your auntie or your grandmama? Don't you have the right to do that without being concerned about they got to use kit gloves on them. They got to be sure their rights is red when they're not thinking about their rights when they're knocking you in the head, taking your purse. Don't you have a right to be safe? I think everybody has a right to be safe. So that goes without saying, right? Um, but for me, I'm always going to look beyond the surface because that's who just God, that's the nature of who God created me to be. And I think if we start to do that with people, we will be able to get over this hump. See, what we do is we size up the crime. In prison, you go. We know ain't nobody getting rehabilitated behind those walls. Then they come right back home. You got that vicious cycle. You got a felony. You got all these things. So there's no way for me to just look at a fourth of the person because of the crime. That's just a fourth of the person. That's not the totality of the person. I'm speaking about even the person that raped me. The person that raped me was sick. He had a, a thing for young women. Was it wrong? Yes, but he was sick. He needs to get some help. Now he's in prison. Mm -hmm. And I'm fearful that if he comes home, he'll do the same thing again because there was no resolve for what was really the problem. It was what was going on in here and what was going on in here with him. So for me, I have to look at the whole person. I can't just look at the crime. Do I need to be safe? Yes. Do we all need to be safe? I think that goes without saying. But we also have to understand that we're all in a society where, as Black people, we're not safe. We might not be getting carjacked, but we are affected by systemic racism and other things. And even systemic racism, and a lot of people don't get it, our neighborhoods didn't just wind up like this. There's zoning laws that put liquor stores on every corner in our neighborhoods. We didn't vote them in. That was city council that did that. Or the DDA or whoever allows these, these businesses to be in position and in place, right? So all of these things, they are dynamics behind why. A lot of people say, oh, excuses, excuses, excuses. It's not about excuses. They're dynamics, they're real. And until we start to truly address them, 
then we're going to we're going to continue to scratch the surface because we're not going to the root cause of what is going on. And I said, you take my purse. Go ahead, because you're not going to get nothing. No way. Right. I'm just saying. But we got to look at the whole person. Well, all right. Anyone else? Well, I'm going to chime Anyone in else? because we do have the right to feel safe. And that is why. I exercise my Second Amendment rights. Don't come around here playing. I won't even take my garbage can to the curb without my pistol. And it's sad that I have to feel that way. It's sad that I do that. But I'm telling you that I do. I won't even sit in my backyard under my gazebo without it. It's a shame that I don't feel comfortable sitting in my own backyard and feel safe. What has this come to? And it's not a matter of my gentleman not being man of this house to protect me because he certainly is that. And I do believe he would give his life for me and the children that live in this household. But he's not always around. So I have to stand up and protect myself. But when you say, do we have the right to feel safe? We also need to know our rights. And I think a lot of our problem stems from the lack of that. We don't know our rights. Now, we can hire an attorney when we get in a situation and we need them to interpret, you know, the law on our behalf or whatever. But I'm not necessarily even talking about that. Just basic everyday rights. A lot of us don't even know them. And that's a problem. So we need education on all levels, but especially when it comes to our rights. We don't even know that the people that are in local and city government work for us. We have rights. <laughs> you work for me. And don't you dare tell them one because you and you and I ran into a lady. I was at a function in Belleville and that lady demeaned the city of Inkster so bad. She, I was the only black person there. Let me put that on the floor most often in a lot of these things. But um, she was like, well, you know, I'm just so glad that you're doing something to help these children because we do a lot of work with black children. And she said, because I have someone that's in my class. She was a college professor that's from that little town there, Inkster, that barely knows anything, can barely, I couldn't wait for her to finish talking, to tell her that this black person who you think made it over is from that little town that you're talking about. And then I had to tell her, ma'am, you should be careful how you tell that story to people. And she said, why is that? So somebody gonna put their hands on you. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then I just walked away. But, you know, I felt like that was my responsibility, though, since I made it over. Somebody gonna put their hands on you. You can't just walk around and say that. You meet the right one, they're gonna put their hands on you, lady. You can't just say that and, and feel like it's okay. That's not okay. 
So we need to know our rights. We need to know we have the right to stand up for ourselves when and how. And I ain't talking about a cussing out. Sometimes you got to play chess instead of checkers. But know your rights and stand up for yourself. Write a letter. Go to the city council meeting. Stand up for yourself. When I was in corporate America, though, then I'm going to yield to the panel. I tried to stand up for the other black people. I was a scientist <laughs> advisor and we had a lot of things going wrong. I knew I was hired as a double spin counter was when they changed to the diversity initiative. So they hired me because I'm black and I'm female in the science field, right? I already knew that. I stood up for a lot of things that weren't right. So we have our little backdoor meetings. When it was time to stand up, I was there by my damn self. Nobody was backing me. They were afraid to stand up for their rights. They were afraid they were going to lose their jobs. They were afraid of so many things. We got to stop being scared. You got to sacrifice something to get what you want sometimes. But we got to stop being scared. And if somebody is determined and brave enough or courageous enough to stand up for the cause, then back them. But don't pretend like you're going to. And then when it's time, you're not there. We have so much of that going on that it's ridiculous. But know when to stand up and stand. Okay. Anyone else? Well, along, we, we, we talked about the criminal justice system, you know, in terms of don't you have a right to be to be safe. But now I'm just going to touch on something that I deal with all the time. Beyond a right to be safe, but when your loved one's life has been taken. Okay? Your loved one's life has been taken. And when you have an opportunity to say this person should be locked up forever, forever. Okay? because my aunt, my mama, my daughter is not coming back again. Now, you know, a lot of us want prison reform and a lot of us believe that nobody is beyond redemption. You know, as a Christian, I, I, I believe that, that nobody is beyond redemption. But I run into so many times, particularly with, with, with black victims of crime where somebody's daddy has been shot and killed, you know, can you understand the feeling that people have? It's one thing to say we want prison reform, okay? We, we want to put an end to uh, excessive sentencing. We want to put an end to mass incarceration. You know, we want to restore good time. It's, it's one thing to talk about that in an abstract sense. But is there anybody who can tell me that I'm wrong when I realize the pain that those people feel and how they're not interested in all the other things I was talking about then. They're interested in trying to assuage the pain they feel by knowing this person will never see daylight again, you know? So so how do you respond to me with that concern? More importantly, how do you respond to that person that's lost a loved one and you feel you need prison reform? Well, I, you know what, uh, Attorney Mack, my thing is that but prison reform doesn't mean that there's no rehabilitation. It doesn't mean that there's no time um, away from society. It doesn't mean that at all. I don't. I don't. When you when you talk about reform, 
I, I think we have to rethink how we reform, you know, because obviously if a person is, is homicidal or suicidal, they should not be in society during that time. Because if you're, and a lot of times people who are homicidal, wanting to kill, they're suicidal too, because they don't really care about their own lives. And then at the root of that is probably depression. Who knows? And they probably have a very bad story. You know, and I get that. Um, now, I can get it because I, it's not my loved one. Howsoever. What happens if it's mine? What happens if it's mine? And I, I think that when we're we're rethinking justice, mm -hmm. how does that look? That doesn't mean that the person does not have consequences for their behavior. There still has to be a consequence. But how we render consequences. Who, who gets consequences? Who doesn't get consequences? I mean, you can see the, the injustice and in how consequences are happening all over our country. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, depending on the color of the skin and the economic fortitude, you will see a difference in how their cases are handled. Right. So for me, when I talk about reform in my mind, I'm thinking abolition. And I'm thinking that prison the way we are, that prison the way it is right now does not work. It's not working. It hasn't worked. <clears throat> if it had worked, we wouldn't have millions of people in prison right now. <clears throat> so prison is not working. Um, we would have the people going back and forth in. So when I'm looking at that, we have to have a new way. I'm not saying that every, you know, and I get that when something, a loved one, somebody murdered your loved one and you want them to go away. We, they need to go away, but they need to go away in a system that's not inhumane because it's just breeding more inhumane, violent people. And it's just a vicious circle that has continued for so long. And so we can't keep throwing away people the way we've been throwing away people. We can't keep warehousing people the way we've been doing it. We have to come up with a different way of doing things because what is, what's going on today is insane. It's inhumane and it's not working. And people are getting paid millions and billions of dollars off of the free labor. It's working for them. Off the, you know, the free, uh, off of the service they provide for um, prison and everything else they do to make money, except for the people who are in it. So we had to figure out a different way of doing this, you know, not only for um, what's going on today, but for our future. I respect I'm that. I'm going to say. I respect that. My brother was murdered in, in the city of Detroit. Ooh. And Ooh. Um, I feel two ways about it. One way was 
if he wouldn't have been doing what he was doing, he wouldn't have got shot. Or I can look at it another way and say, you know, someone killed my brother and, you know, woe is me and my family and this, that, or the other. I think sometimes we have to be real, you know, and, and I'm not saying this uh, any other way except for being me. But every single last one of the people who get killed or convicted, we find the best picture we can and put it on TV. My brother didn't have no business doing what he was doing. We didn't go dig out the most innocent picture we could probably find and say, you know, they killed our angel. He wasn't being an angel when he got killed. Let's be real and own up to these things. Like some of these kids and people are out doing stuff they didn't have no business and they're putting their own lives in jeopardy. But when it comes to the criminal justice system and reform, I pulled up the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, comma, except for the punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, mm -hmm. comma, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We're living out what's going on in between the two commas mm -hmm. because that's what pertains to us. If we can do something just about that amendment, because it, it says right there, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except for punishment for a crime. So that's what's going on be, in, behind those bars slavery and involuntary servitude it says it right there so they're not doing anything wrong if they're following their their law their amendment their rule that they put in place so we need to scrap that whole constitution and do something different but we won't it won't happen we'll never see that well you know valerie you are so right because slavery is not illegal in the United States of America. It is not. Because I, I agree with you 10,000%. That's exactly what the 13th Amendment says. And under certain circumstances, it is legal, you know, and, and that prison industrial complex, I agree with you 100%. But you know, part of the reason I was so happy Jay Love assigned this to me so we could talk about the nuts and bolts of the criminal justice system, okay? And, and one of that is release from prison, okay? Now, about nine years ago, when there was another push to release people from, from prison, you know, uh, to, 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 to decrease numbers, in, in the city of Detroit, they did a poll, and it was like 70% of the people who polled said, I do not want people released early because they coming back in my neighborhood they, they they're not going to bloomfield hills you know they're not going to troy they're coming back in my neighborhood and i just don't feel safe and i don't care what color they are so my question to you is is this we talk about wanting prison reform but how many and i'm not trying to put you on the spot but i ask you this all the time you want to have a halfway house next door to you Valerie, you, you carry your gun when you go outside to the trash. Wouldn't you be carrying your gun all the time if you had a halfway house next to you? 
I would have two guns, a knife, and a rock. <laughs> I'm gonna throw the rock at your ass. It's the last resort. <laughs> but you absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But that brings about a, a great point because all of the halfway houses and treatment homes and things of that nature. I won't say all the majority do end up in our in the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. They end up in our communities mm. and we allow it. We allow it. No one pushes back or says, you know, not in my neighborhood or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's allowed. I sit on the DDA for the city of Belleville. And I'm going to tell you, they strongly believe in keeping their neighborhood safe, that downtown area, a place where families would want to come from all over and participate. And they're going to make sure those ordinances are followed and that they have uniformity and things that they don't feel is conducive for that community. It's not coming to that area. You better believe it's not coming. But we don't do that in our communities. Where are the ordinance for some of these buildings look like hell, just drive down seven mile. They look crazy. Nobody writes tickets for ordinances or make these property owners accountable, you know, or any of that. The DDA gets a lot of tax dollars. They're more powerful in certain cities than the city council because of the revenue that's captured in the form of tax dollars. And some of these downtown areas and things of that look like pure hell. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. I wouldn't want that in my community. It wouldn't be nothing much I could do without it, do about it, because I would probably be that one or two people standing up saying we don't want it. And let me tell you something. When these council meetings happen and all of these other meetings where they are making decisions about what's going to happen in your community, that is a public a meeting in the view of the public. It's not a public meeting. That's why they put your ass out after three minutes when you're talking, because it's not for you. And you better believe that they have had their minds made up about what they're going to do when they take those seats at that table. They just sit there and let us do the Sambo show. And then they go ahead and do what they had intended to do anyway. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'm going to say something. I don't think we would have the, first of all, we uh, don't want no halfway houses next door to us or down the street from us because they don't even provide any services inside the prisons. So there's no training. There's no nothing going on. I just read a story today about a young man who was getting out actually today or yesterday. And before he got out, he started threatening one of the guards. He said, you know, when I get out of prison, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to come up here. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take your ID and I'm going to go kill your family. He wrote it on the walls. He just kept saying how he was whatever he was going to do. Now, he was already in the area of the prison that was for people who wasn't following, you know, directions or whatever. So they wait to this, um, to the day he was getting ready to get out after he'd have made all these threats. Nobody did anything other than allow him to make all these threats. And he said, ain't nobody going to do nothing. You know, I can say what I want to say. The feds actually took the case up 
and snatched him up before he left out the door, right? So this is where I'm talking about how things prison, the way they are don't work. Because this is a prime example. You have a kid and they ask him, well, why, why are you so angry? Why did you do this? He said, but this is how I brought up. I was brought up and somebody do something to you, you do something bad. Nobody was there to try to correct this behavior or correct the problem or get him some help or put him in some therapy. None of that. They just let him spill out all these threats. Now he's going to go to another facility. He's not even 20 years old. I mean, 30 years old. And so he's going to probably be in prison another five or 10 years. Still no correction. So when, or no, no, nothing, you know, no meeting the needs if you need some kind of help benefits or mental help or, you know, something to what, what, what is the core problem? No, nothing of that. Just, you know, um, we just let them right back out. So you let everybody back out and then everybody's like, well, I don't want them coming next to me. You know, we all know there's nothing going on there, but warehousing, they just, you know, and so that's the problem. Once you get inside these institutions or in these places, we need something to happen. We're we're sharing, I mean, my taxes, your taxes, everybody taxes that's listening to this or who's going to listen to this pays for this. We pay money for these facilities. Some of these people working here and they make more money working inside these prisons than you go do going to work every day. That's true. That's true. And we just stay silent. This is on us. When your cousin come home, when your uncle, when your daddy, when your sister, when your aunt come home and they the needs haven't been met, they're probably worse than what they were when they went in. We have to stand up for something. And so if we have to put people inside these facilities because of the laws, because of the slavery, <laughs> they getting all this free labor, we can make a demand, hey, we need people to come out better than what they went in. Because isn't that supposed to be the goal when you go inside a correctional facility? Is something is supposed to be corrected? That's okay. just mine. And, and I want to add that the, the prison industry is $80 billion spent annually on incarceration by government agencies. 80, not million, 80 billion. And that probably is more now because that was as of April 2019. So what we're doing is backing corporations to house people and to make more money for themselves, for their own company. It's not, an, it's not helping anybody to change, to turn around, to gain skills, to become literate. They have done studies and it has shown that the, the greater amount of literacy, the higher the literacy rate in communities, the lower the crime. Okay. I'm going well, to say this. Well, oh. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mr. Mack. No, no, go so, ahead, sister. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, sister. I'm sorry. So a few years back, several, there was a Michigan prisoner reentry initiative. 
-hmm. And I worked with that initiative. I had 120 inmates. The goal was to prepare them to re-enter back into the community. I had an issue with the program because the true preparation did not occur. I think if these individuals are working, making license plates, I, I get pissed off every time I renew my license plates to know they were made for a quarter and I have to pay three, $400 per vehicle and I have four vehicles. That's a problem for me, right? <laughs> if the individuals who are doing these things were paid a living wage in there because they're actually working jobs and that money could be saved up for them. And then they are given the proper tools. They just dumped on the street. They should at least leave prison with a social security card, a driver's license, and some of the basic things that they need to even get started with their lives. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about reform, we can start there, just releasing them. You know, when they go to the parole board, that then there's enough time for you to start getting the documentation together, your state agency. You can have a secretary of state branch inside each facility if you wanted to, but they should leave the facility with some of the things that they need to have a great start at life. But no, we don't want that. We meaning master. We yeah. don't want that. Yeah. And so, you know, the problem with where else will they put them? They can put them in a lot of places they don't have to just put them in the community that they feel is already a drug or crime haven they don't have to do that and that's what they're doing just playing off of the conditions that already exist in our neighborhood so what well, ain't gonna never get no better so just put the prison over there or just put it over here or whatever so you know they, they won't mind and it's not that we mind or we don't mind it's about what Jay said, giving the individual the tools and resources that is necessary for them to be successful. If you do that nine times out of 10, the majority of them won't reoffend because they have what they need to survive. They are doing or reoffending as a survival technique. A few of them are mental health issues and all of that, and we may have some recidivism. But the majority of them, they are trying to survive mm -hmm. and they're doing what they know how to do to survive. Okay. And, and you know what? The, the sad thing, Valerie, I was I had um, a couple of uh, houses where I would help some of the, the inmates as they returned to the community also. Um, and when I would go pick them up at the various prisons and we did the female prison too out here in uh, in Ypsilanti. Um, they were not ready. Now, and they didn't have anything. What she's saying is true. They didn't have anything. They didn't have license. They didn't have their DHS paperwork. And, and, and these people also had severe mental illness. You know, some of them needed medication. They weren't stabilized, some of them. Some of them were. Um, the, the thing about it is, and this is what I want to reiterate, the prisons also got 
reentry money to prepare them to reenter. And they still weren't prepared. So, so we we gotta look at how are we spending monies? Are they being allocated in an equitable way? And are they doing what they're supposed to do with the money? So much that we need to look at as far as how things affect our community. And that goes to accountability. Mm -hmm. has, we need accountability. Um, when you were talking about uh, these programs and everything, who's who's making sure things are getting done? You know, now they have um, come up with um, where you're supposed to have your driver's license and things now, you know, but uh, Gerard came home without one. <laughs> so, you know, I just had all his stuff, you know, but if I didn't have it, he would have came home with nothing. So accountability, you know, who's looking over there, over these things. And um, I think the, we also have to just retrain our mind to look at the um, everyone as a human as well. And so, and when we're talking about humans, we're talking about the, the needs of a human. Um, the things that they need, we are so programmed by the media and everything else that we listen to every day. Um, Cause we listen to two, four and seven all day long. And, we get programmed by the, all these narratives. And then when people come home, you know, open, maybe willing to do better, sometimes they don't have the support, you know. So we have to be, you know, have more empathy. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. More empathy inside and out. And I think that would be a, a big um um, factor in change. Well, anybody else? Um, Jay Love, I don't know how much song you're going to let me go on, but I got a million things to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, on this topic, I got a million things to ask, but but so so cut me off when, when you got to, Jay Love. But okay. I've got, I've got a question, though. You know, when we talk about the progressive movement in terms of, of prosecutors, let's say, all right, uh, viewing the criminal justice system differently and trying to be more fair and equitable. Well, let me give you a situation I encountered and you tell me what the answer is, okay? So let's say you have a, a progressive uh, law enforcement, prosecutors, county sheriff, municipality says, you know what? we are not going to prosecute prostitution because those women are traumatized enough through what they are experiencing and the criminal justice system is really just going to reward the johns because we're going to hold the women accountable but the people that are making the money that are prostituting them they will continue on and we don't want to traumatize those women more but the other equation i want you to consider is if those women are in fact being traumatized if you don't get jurisdiction over them 
You cannot offer them any services. You cannot offer them protection. You cannot get a personal protection order to keep those men away from them. You can't get them anything without getting into a system because contrary to pop, people believe, popular belief, you can't just tell somebody you need to go on getting this mental health treatment program and have no way to back it up. So I guess the, the problem that I see are perhaps well-intentioned, okay, uh, uh, addressing of trauma, you know, that, that women, for example, go through. But I question in the long run, are we really helping women and, and are we not sacrificing their well-being on the altar of what seems politically correct or, 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 or uh, I can't even th think of the proper term, more sympathetic to them because they need help and without jurisdiction, they cannot get that help. Well, Attorney Hugo Matt, let's start with, first of all, when people go to prison, all the money goes where the prisons are located, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they have these prison towns, I don't know, in Michigan. We're just talking about Michigan. Mm -hmm. All up, wherever. And that's where all the money is, right? So when these when people come home and address the women, the women come home, the, the funding is, is very uh, little, you know, the support is very little. That's because all the money is out in the suburbs somewhere. So we, it's the politics of it all. It has to be, all of this stuff, you know, like what we're talking about, is it is it guilty? Yeah, this system is guilty because it does things to um, take away from the, the, the re-establishment or redevelopment of you once you are into this system. It kind of keeps you tied into it. So we have to figure out and as people that on the outside looking in how we can make these changes happen. How do we can make our, motivate our legislators and people supposedly that we put in office or put them out of office? and get these things to change so we can actually have um, um, change where women are protected, where uh, women, um, when they come home, they have everything that they need because they also are mothers. They're also are, a lot of them are heads of households and all this, you know, and they carry a big responsibility even in prison. So we, we need, the whole, the whole thing, that's why I'm, I'm just so, in my mind, abolitionist. This whole system just needs to be torn down so we can get to a point where we can be helpful to others. That's, that's why we're here. Basically, we are here to be of service. So in order to be of service, we have to change these things that are disservicing to us as people. I don't know if I answered the question, but <laughs> that's, where I, that's where I'm at with that. All right. I want to give everybody. So are you saying that, are you, Mr. Mack, are you saying that the John and 
the female participant or male participant or whatever, both should be convicted of a crime if in fact they had this sexual act under the auspice of prostitution? Is that what you're saying with oh, your question? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, aren't we doing a disservice doing a to disservice the woman to leave her out there vulnerable her out there. without any options that are going to be beneficial to her because we can't help her unless there's some kind of a jurisdiction we can't protect her we can't do it we can't do it so you know i, I feel a, a lot of ways about that but let me try to be as specific to answer your question as possible i don't think um true protection or assistance to the participant, whether it's male or female, will come from being under the auspice or in the jurisdiction of law enforcement. I believe there are several prongs to that. Number one, some people are having survival sex. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is that they are engaging in sexual activity for to provide, then we would have to make sure that they have that, whatever that is, you know, finances, feed their kids, housing. It could be a lot of reasons why they are engaging in survival sex. Then you have people who consider it entrepreneurship and they are having sessions and this is a business model that they choose to have. There's no other way to look at it. And then the next part of it is that, that gray line that crosses both of those, which is the human trafficking where the control and the coercion comes to play. But all three of those are separate things. Now, the first two mm -hmm. can directly mm -hmm. correlate to the third, but that's not necessarily the case. Let me put it to you this way, and, and people can feel how they want to feel about it. My mother told me growing up, I got in trouble because she said, do you know why your pee is yellow? And I, I was a little kid and I said, no, she said, because what you sit on is gold and you don't give it away for free. <laughs> so I went back to school and said that the, the school called my house. But anyway, um, as a result of that, there are a lot of women, not just my mother, but I will use myself that will tell you that you shouldn't even be interacting sexually or intimately without a man that can't do anything for you. Now, if that's not further explained what that really means, a lot of that mentality and stuff gets perpetuated in our own homes. So I don't know if having a, a woman incarcerated or in, in some type of program or whatever after the fact is appropriate because true prevention happens prior to and what does that look like how do we even prevent them 
from going out on the street or feeling like they want to engage. And I'm talking about the ones that end up trafficked because they've been groomed. And then the ones who are having survival sex, because the ones that are doing it for entrepreneurship, that's fine. But the other two, there's a lot of things that go into the reason why they are doing what they're doing. So I don't know if the law is going to protect them or not. I worked with the DPD sex crime unit before, and some girls were young. They were rescued. And we still don't have any place for them to go. So instead of a halfway house, how about a home for these young girls that end up being groomed because they want some bundles and some eyelashes that when they blink, the whole room move? Why not have a home for them? That's more prevention, right? To try to make them be aware of their self-confidence and all of these other things and not the material aspects to life so that they don't even end up having survival sex or trafficked. But a lot of this stuff we're talking about starts in our communities, but it can be stopped in our community by embracing those that need it and providing the resources and wrapping around individuals with the services that they need. So I guess we're back to that family piece again. Right. right. Now, my mother wasn't telling me to go out and be a hoe. Like she explained, <laughs> you know, what she was talking about. Like, hey, you got to bring something to the table, but make sure he has something you know, to bring to the table too, because you could end up having a baby and now, you know, get in his head before you get in his bed. You don't even know who this person is. That good time, go away, what you got? You know, that's the perspective she was coming from. But I'm just saying, you know, a lot of these conversations don't take place. These girls don't understand. And guys, you know, a young man say, hey, I, I think I was born female. A lot of black parents and white ones too. Well, ain't no gays living in this house. Get your ass out. So now they out in the streets. There are not enough homes to take them in or whatever. So what do they do to survive? Sex. So it's a lot of issues and a lot of things um, that perpetuate the situation that you're talking about. But I think if they do not necessarily give them a criminal record, but bring them in and say, hey, is housing your problem? Is mental health your problem? What is your problem? And connect them to services. <clears throat> Excuse me, that would be a little bit different, but I don't think that's happening. But you're also talking about in some places, which is legal. You can go to some states and it's, it's legal. Mm -hmm. so, and then you go to other states, it's criminalized. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> we have to, again, it goes back to, you know, what is criminal and what is not. Mm -hmm. And um, if it's um, a mutual thing, you know, like uh, I was on a panel where it was sex workers on there and they want, you know, something built in the system for them to, you know, not... Um, this is what they decide to do as their business. And, you know, nobody is forcing them to do this. This is their choice. And it is mutual between both parties. And so if that's the case, then why are we putting people in prison for something that they both agreed upon? This is agree, agreed transaction. Mm -hmm. 
And then survival sets, we have people right now having survival sets just to pay the rent in Detroit because the rent is going up. The rent is too damn high. And so, you know, they're trying to pay the rent. And then, then like Val said, then we have trafficking. And that's where, we, where the line is crossed. And so we have to just figure that out. And then, like I was saying, that we need to, instead of having all these mon- all the money and all these places outside of the places where people call their home, we need to advocate, al- allocate these funds and places so we can help people maybe get um, programs or homes or whatever that they need so they won't be in the position to have to have survival sex. So... Um, it's multi-solution, I think, for that. For that, you know, one thing I will give some praise to the sex workers for—they're organizing a union. Mm-hmm. They're having a sex workers union. So when I talked about before knowing your rights and fighting for your rights and coming together as a collective and things of that nature. They are, there are sex workers unions in other places, of course, where they are legal, but now underground here in the Metro Detroit area, that formation is taking place because they, they're tired of being, I guess, misunderstood or thrown into this pot of being a prostitute when that's not what's going on. You know, they're looking at it as part of entrepreneurship or you know, whatever they classify it as. So they're organizing and we'll probably hear from them in the near future. Yeah. And, you know, we got to admit that this has been an activity that has always been around, you know. So um, I I think that um, we have criminalized a lot of things in the community that have been just a matter of survival. you know, so we have to know that what activities are being criminalized, what activities are frowned upon more than others, who's doing the frowning. And and I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of times, um, yeah, we do want, we want our children safe. We want our family safe. We want young people to grow up with high self-esteem. We want you to know who you are. We want you to know that there's power within you and that you you can, you know, the thing is, is when you stop believing that you can be, do, or have anything, you know, and this is, they keep saying the American dream. I don't say the American dream because I want our, I want people who are humanly directed to develop your own dream. I want your dream not to be money led. I want it to be profitable from your own gifts, your own talents, your own abilities. I want you to be empowered and maximize who you are. And we gotta, we gotta redefine dreaming and uh, stop allowing your dreams to be mediated to you from the who's who on TV or in the media. So there are things that, that we need to continue to do in our community and we gotta know that Whatever's been going on, it's not going to go away just like that. But we can make progress one person at a time, one family at a time, one community at a time. Okay. Well, this was an awesome conversation, you guys. 
<laughs> We've been on for a minute, and but it's so good. <laughs> I'm like, oh wow, it's actually hot. We might have to do a part two, um, attorney who go back because we right. didn't even get to your, you know, your slides or nothing. But nothing. <laughs> it was great. It was this was great. Right. And I hope that, you know, everyone that stayed on with us and listened, that they got something from it. And um, if you want to ask us a question or you want to get in contact with attorney Hugo Matt, let me put your link up here, attorney Hugo Matt. You can contact attorney Hugo Mack at this at www.hmacklaw.com. Absolutely. If you want to get in contact with us, all you got to do is go to turning a moment into a moment at gmail.com. Leave me a message. And uh, we'll be back next week, actually, again. Um, next week, guess who's coming? Edward is back. Edward. All right. <laughs> Edward is back. Yay! <laughs> He's going to be talking about transforming the county jail system. And so, which is a much needed conversation that we need to have. Um, and also, we want to invite you to learn more about the Gerard's wrongful conviction story. Go to www.change.org slash justice for Gerard. Sign and share the petition. And is there anything um, that you want to leave us with, Attorney Hugo Matt? Well, I want to say this. First of all, thank you, Jay Love, and thank you, Val. Thank you, Tia. Thank you, Trishay, and all the people that have watched. I want to leave you with this. History is best suited to reward research, okay? I heard a man say that on the radio. Uh, and I don't even remember his name. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you all I came <laughs> up with it. So, so, so <laughs> history is best suited to reward research. And history tells us we don't need an army in order to win. What we need is a group of dedicated people to win, okay? God did not give Gideon the victory because of the army. He gave Gideon the victory because of people willing to win. So despite what we've heard tonight, which has all been for real and true, we stay true to the God and the truth that we know and we serve. And I promise you, in the end, we win. I looked at the book. I done cheated. I went to the final <laughs> chapter. In the end, we win. So I love you, sisters. God bless you. And I'm, I'm, I'm thanking you, Jay Love. I'm thanking you, Tia. I'm thanking you, Valerie. You know, you my girl, Val. You all right with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So God bless and you. Val, thank you. <laughs> Val, let everyone know where we can see you at. So I have a show called The Real Black Coffee. No sugar, no cream, straight talk with Valerie. Here in the metropolitan Detroit um, Highland Park area, you can hear it on 88.1 FM WHPR. Otherwise, you can go to my Facebook page, The Real Black Coffee, No Sugar, No Cream, and we go live from there. And also anywhere where you stream your podcast. Monday, uh, the show will be about being black, gay, and proud. 
And it's about a young man who came from my community in Inkster and came from a long line, a real small, strong black man who um, just had a lot of masculinity and a lot of things going on for them in our city, very well known. And he decided that he was born in the wrong skin. And what was that like for him? So again, we will discuss overcoming the challenges of being a feminine black man in a masculine black family. And what was that like for him? So tune in on Monday. And again, if you don't get a chance to see it, you know, you can go to the YouTube channel, The Real Black Coffee, No Sugar, No Cream, the Facebook page, or anywhere where you stream your podcast. Thank you. What, what time Monday, Valerie? What time Monday, Valerie? 6 p.m. from 6 to 8. And Rabbitia, do you have something to say before we leave? Oh, Jay, I'm just oh, Jay, wanted to I'm say thank you. To say thank you. Uh, thank you for the platform. Uh, thank, you for the thank you for the people. Thank you for the power. Just thank you. Uh, I am so excited. Of course, you can catch me at the Choice Zone, www.thechoicezone.com. And um, I will be talking about this on Saturday. Autism in the communities um, and mental health have been for over 20 odd years, probably closer to 30, but who's counting? Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to be talking about autism, helping people um, with children in the community, some of the natural things you can do. Uh, and so you'll, you'll see that I'll be live on Saturday and uh, you can always uh, reach me at the Choice Zone. Thank what you. What time? What time to you? Uh, it'll be at 2.30 on on Saturday. I'm going to go live. It'll be on all the different platforms. All right. Thank mm -hmm. you, Reverend Tia. Okay. Thank you. So thank you, guys. We'll see you next week on Turning a Moment into a Moment. Good night. Good night.